Let's turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that our minds will be on you. Father, pray that your spirit would be with me and that uh, I'll be able to teach what's true and I'll be able to convey your word and stay out of, way, of the way of it. We're asking in Jesus' name, amen. We have spent the last uh, 12 weeks studying the doctrine of the last things and these uh, last things begin much sooner than we might think. According to the scriptures, the last things begin at the, the moment we die. That's really when uh, we, the subject of eschatology begins. And it involves hell and heaven, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and eternal life. Uh, the goal is to finish this series today by looking at how the first and second coming work together for our living now, which is the goal of eschatology. Uh, any study of the, thing, the, 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 the last times, the last things, which is what the word eschatology means, uh, has to result in, a, uh, in living righteously right now. Uh, but before we go there, uh, just want to see if there's any questions about the things that we talked about or didn't talk about during this series the last 12 weeks, because uh, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not intending to, today, in our lesson, deal with any, uh, any more of the things that may happen at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have any questions about the things we did cover, or any questions about the things we didn't cover, um, this will be a good opportunity for you to ask them. And we can take a couple minutes addressing them before we go to our final lesson today. Yes, Andrew. Sorry if you did cover this one. Um, so during one, one thing about the premillennial position that I kind of had, had a hard time getting my mind around is this idea that during the millennial kingdom, there are unbelievers mm -hmm. with no opportunity for salvation. Correct. So what I've understood stood about our current age is part of the reason why unbelievers still exist. Why hasn't God just wiped out all evil? Because there's still an opportunity to be saved. And so theologically, it just seems, I have a hard time getting my mind around that. Other than just the Bible says so, mm -hmm. do you have any theological category for thinking why would God continue to allow people to be born and be created um, when there's not even... I guess, the opportunity for salvation. Well, actually, theologically, is the easiest way to explain because that's what he does now. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, since only the elect will be saved, and not everybody ever born is elect, he is appointing people to be born right now mm. and to die without, without coming to Jesus, yeah, Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, what uh, is actually... A merciful thing, you know, those people who have a thousand years less in eternity to be in hell, as it were, or, you know, so it doesn't seem to be any different than what's going on 
right now. It's just going to be more obvious. You know, now we know we don't know who the elect is, so we proclaim the gospel to all to all people. Uh, there at that point, then you know that those are not the elect, and uh, so I, I don't see much difference between that and now theologically, which was your question. Yeah, Katie. To add to that, then there wouldn't be any gospel proclamation. It would, because the believer, even in heaven, still will you know, grow and so on through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, and Jesus being right there, he is the truth. He is the gospel. So there will be gospel proclamation like, it, like every believer needs to hear the gospel every week, every day, or whatever. But not unto salvation. Not unto salvation. Unto condemnation, Right? That, that they'll be there unto condemnation. The same way that's now. Because if you don't come to faith, the proclamation of the gospel is unto your condemnation, as, as Paul says, uh, that to some... Uh, the gospel has, always has an aroma. To some is going to be aroma of life. To others is going to be the aroma of death. So to those that have been resurrected, it's always going to be the aroma of life. And then to those that, uh, that were not... You know, they were alive at the coming or are coming to life in the... Millennium is going to always be the aroma of death. So again, in that, there's not a lot of difference than the gospel proclamation. Now, it's just going to be more evident. The, 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 the parties are going to be more evidently divided than it is now. Right? Linda. So the verses we've been looking for the last few weeks, right? Revelation 19 talks about at the coming of Jesus, the day's judgment. There's no more salvation after that. Uh, and the Thessalonian epistles talks about uh, that there'll be a time where there's no more restraint. There's no more uh, op- uh, operation of the Spirit for salvation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that once Christ comes back, that's it. Now, only after that, only judgment. So it's 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 the Bible says so is pretty much all over the New Testament. Um, it rubs it wrong because we probably wouldn't do things like that. But since we're not God, it doesn't. You know, it, it, we have to kind of shape our. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Grace says that I'm getting Alzheimer's because I can't remember English words, <coughs> and I'm going to end up speaking only Portuguese one of these days. Uh, 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 we, 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 tend, we have to shape our sensitivities to the sensitivities of the Bible. Um, and often when we say, I can't believe God would do that, has to has more to do with, like, with our not be willing to do that, not necessarily um, God. So the, the idea that when Christ comes back, that's the end, that's judgment, there is no more hope of salvation, is, it, it's you know, Titus 2, like we're going to see in a moment, Revelation 19 and 20, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, uh, all those speak of that. Uh, Matthew 25, when he comes back, no, he's going to uh, separate those that are alive and between sheep and goat and, and so on. So, yeah. Any other questions? All right. I see people flipping through Bibles, uh, but uh, maybe there's... Uh, 
What, well, are, the, what are the other positions do with the first and second resurrection? So that's what we covered last week. So the whole lesson was, uh, and then a well, few I'm weeks. I'm saying, what do the other positions do with Correct. Uh, so I'll, refer, I'll, I'll briefly cover, but listen to the other lessons, because we cover in, in length what the other positions do. Uh, the all millennial, post millennial position just uh, have both the just and the unjust being raised on, at the coming of Jesus Christ. There's only one single resurrection at the same time. So when Christ comes back, then the, the just and the unjust are both raised at that time. Then the, the, there's final judgment at that time. So what, you know, I think somebody asked about the great white throne. I think it was Risa. Uh, so the all-millennial, post-millennial position see that at the coming of Jesus Christ. All that's happening right then. And then the, the historic millennial view sees that happening at the end, that, that great white thing at the end of the millennial kingdom. Any, any other questions? No? You look like you're ready to... to ask something. Oh, I mean, I was just thinking about the way I had formulated the original question. Mm -hmm. And I... I cast it in terms of, like, I guess, election and the opportunity for salvation. I mm -hmm. guess what I was really, what would have been a better way to have articulated would have been, say, so when we think about evil in the world, why, why does God continue to permit evil? Mm -hmm. Why does he continue to have people? Because humanity is continuing to exist, so from humanity, he can pull and elect. So, pull and elect people from ongoing humanity. So, I guess... It still doesn't quite. It still feels a little strange, not because there's not the opportunity of salvation, but because he's not even saving anyone from among that group. So that's one aspect of the delay of the coming of Christ. Not that's not the only the aspect. Only. Okay. Because every day a non-elect lives, that non-elect is gathering more and more more judgment, more severe judgment. For him or for her, as well. So that aspect continues, right? Uh, uh, through through the millennium, millennial kingdom, as well. So that's the, there's no difference on that. The, on, the 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 delay of Jesus coming. The, the only thing is not so that more people can be saved. That's one aspect of that. And and this second aspect. That's why a lot a lot of people in the Dutch church refuses to use the expression common grace. Because it's not going to be gracious for the non-elect. Because whatever blessing one that doesn't come to Christ receives works as, as more fodder for judgment for their refusal to recognize those blessings as from the Lord. And that continues through the, the millennium, millennial. So some, the, the saving purposes of God will have ended, but there are other purposes that glorify God. Um, like punishing evil. So, so the, uh, even with a different formulation, the question thing, the answer is very similar theologically. All right, so we'll, um, I think that there'll be more questions coming, and um, you can email them to uh, andrewlhoy at gmail.com <laughs> uh, and uh, get all your answers uh, there. Uh, we're going to look at uh, second, uh, Titus chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 11 is when they have that uh, famous passage about the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ coming there. 
In verse 11 it says of chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. To understand this passage, we need to understand that the argument for it actually begins earlier in chapter 1. And we can see that by the way that chapter 2 begins. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Uh, right there in, chapter, in verse 1, start with the word but, and the emphatic and, and the unnecessary word you. Uh, that's not a needed word grammatically in the original language, and yet Paul inserted here, to make a difference between the group that he just addressed in the previous verse, in chapter 1, and you, Titus, and through Titus, representatively, Christians there. The contrast is between the defiled and unbelieving ones and those who truly believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So that's a contrast that chapter 2 is making with the you, believer, you, Titus, and those that are not. And these unbelievers are not outside of the church. Verse 16 says that they profess to know God, but their lives deny their, that profession. Remember how every Sunday I talk about having a credible profession of faith? And I try to explain that as, an, uh, as a profession, a statement of faith in Christ, that people around you, by looking at your life, agree that that's a credible, it can be believed. Well, verse 16 speaks of that. These people say they believe in Christ, they believe in God, they are in the church, but yet the way they live their lives does not indicate that, that what they're saying about themselves is actually true. In contrast to that group, Paul c- comes to chapter 2 and speak of the, the different segments of the church and what they are to do as God calls them to do. So here you have these people in the church, these unbelievers, who proclaim to be Christians, but their, their, their life doesn't match what they're saying. And Paul ten, turns and says, okay, this is, this is how people who truly believe in Christ will behave. And he addresses the, the, several different groups in the church. In, in chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about the older men. In verse 3, the older women. In verses 4 and 5, the younger women. In verses 6 through 8, younger men. Verses 7 through and 8, again, the pastor. 9 through 10, slaves. And throughout the book, male and female, rich or poor, are all addressed and say, look, if you say you believe in Christ, that's how your life looks like. Not like these people who profess to be believers, and yet everything about them say otherwise. And the pivotal element for doing what God calls us to do is the grace of God 
that teaches us. And that's what Paul says in verse 11, the passage that we read together. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. And I want you to notice how all this doing that Paul tells Titus needs to happen in the church. The older men, older women, younger women, younger men, so on. All that doing is squarely based on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The main difference between those that are named in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, those that profess to know God, but yet they live as if they don't, is that they don't understand the grace of God. They are not motivated by the grace of God. But those whose professions are credible are motivated by the grace of God. It is the grace of God that propels them, that compels them to obey And notice how Paul says in verse 11 that we do all these things because, in our translation the word is for, the beginning of verse 11, the grace of God has appeared to all men. So older older men, older women, younger women, young young men, pastors, slaves, rich, poor, male, female, do the things that Paul is calling them to do because the grace of God has appeared to them. It is the grace of God through Jesus Christ that teaches us to live lives that are proper for sound doctrine, as he says later on in the chapter, that we are to live lives that are proper for sound doctrine. We tend to think of sound doctrine as the formulation of theology, uh, how we describe different teachings in the Bible. But Paul says that that sound doctrine is not sound unless those formulations, those descriptions of theology affect the way that we're living. So... uh, a perfect description of the Trinity is not sound doctrine until that is lived out by the Church of Jesus Christ. There's that element of, of practice in sound doctrine. And notice also that Paul speaks of past and future grace of God through Jesus Christ in this passage. In, in verse 11, it says that the grace has appeared So the question is, where, how, when has the grace of God appeared? And the answer is, in Jesus' first coming. Uh, John says, in in John 1, 14, 16 and 17, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace of God has appeared when, where, how, through Jesus Christ. But look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, um, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for Good works. So here in verse 14, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ giving himself in the past for our redemption and sanctification. But in verse 13, Paul says that the reason we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age is that Christ is coming again. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So in verses 11 and 14, the reason why we, we, we live in a certain way is because Christ has come. 
in verse 13 is because Christ will come. Christ is going to come back. That's our blessed hope. The, the word translated looking for here in, in the New King James actually means looking forward to. Having a great expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. So the now age, which is really the pre- what the, the present age literally means, is lived in light of the fact that Christ is coming again. So what drives us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the current age, the now age, is our looking forward to our blessed hope, which is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the goal of eschatology? What's the goal of thinking about Christ coming again? What's the goal of understanding those things? The only goal, the goal is righteous living now. So if your study of eschatology causes you to live unrighteously now, or to take the focus from now, then your view is either faulty, or you're not applying that view like the Bible applies it for now. Uh, if if uh, I remember years and years and years ago talking to somebody who said, uh, he happens to be a dispensationalist, and he would say, I'm, I'm not going to invest in my kids' education at all, because Christ might be coming tomorrow, and it will be a waste of time to try to educate my children now. So that is uh, a wrong view of eschatology. Because again, your view of Christ's return impacts how you live now, and that living has to be righteous, and soberly, and orderly, and so on. So we look backwards to the cross of Christ as we serve Him. And we look forward to the second coming, and in doing that, God gives us all that we need to live in the way that pleases Him. Those two things, we're almost as if we're on the... Um, in, in, um, ever, have you guys ever gone in a tubing where there's a, 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 a rope... Um, Grace, I forgot the word again. A rope lift. Have you ever gone there? there usually there's two, two pulleys, one at the end, uh, the top one at the bottom, and it rotates so that it's the, the, the rope is pull, both pushing you and pulling you. So that rope is kind of the grace of Jesus Christ, and the first coming of Christ is pulling it into obedience. The second, as we think about the second coming, that's pulling us into obedience, pushing and pulling there. Any questions before we continue? It is worth asking, then, what is the grace of God? What is the grace of God? Well, we tend to think of grace as a thing, a substance that God is as in a bucket and He ladles it out for us, or a substance that is in a big container, a heavenly container, with spigots, and then we open the spigot and somehow grace comes out of that, we think of grace as that thing that God gives us, and we talk about it, and it's proper to talk about that way because the Bible talks, but that's not really what grace is. This is a very Roman Catholic view of grace. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believes that there's this treasury of merits in heaven, and all the extra works of the saints put in there, and at the bottom comes grace, and the church is the one that uh, regulates the spigots to get uh, that grace given, to distribute that extra good works that's been done by really, really good people. That's not the grace of God. The grace of God is not a thing. It is a disposition. It is God's favorable affections toward us that are, that are not, these affections are not earned by anything we can do. 
So the grace of God has appeared to all men in Jesus Christ in that through Him, God looks at us favorably, and because He looks at us favorably, He strengthens and equips us to serve Him. So the grace of God is God's disposition toward us. It is the way that God acts towards us because of Jesus Christ. It's not something that just God just gives uh, to us as if it's a separate substance from Himself. And because He's looking at us favorably, we're moved to obey Him out of deep gratitude and love for His favor toward us. And that's what Paul really says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Where it says, for the love of Christ compels us. It's interesting that, that this word to say compel is a um, very ambiguous word in the original language because it can be translated either compel, that is push, or it can be also uh, um, translated as constrain, that is, that's the idea of pulling back. And so both of these ideas are in this single word, and you're going to find great variance in the translation because it's such ambiguous and can be both both of these things. And so Paul says the love of Christ compels us, so pushes us or pulls us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so that's what the grace of God does for us. That's what God's disposition for us in Jesus Christ does for us, enable us to not live for ourselves, will live for His glory in obedience to His Word. So Christ pushes us as we think of the cross, and He pulls us as we think of His coming back. Remember Hebrews uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, talks about the cloud of witness, and then says that we race in a certain way. You know, we, lay, we lay aside anything that uh, is snaring us. We lay aside also sin, two different categories. But then, how do we run? It says, looking unto Jesus, right? So, He's at the end of the race. That's the idea of, of thinking of this blessed hope. And we go toward Him, who is both the author, right, the beginning of our faith, and the finisher of our faith at His second coming. Now, we, we usually have no problem thinking about the first coming of Jesus, but sometimes we struggle believing the second coming. Uh, we, we understand that the first coming is a historical event, and He has done that. But keep our minds on the fact that Christ is coming again. That's where I think we struggle more than with the first coming. It's tempting not to believe that He is coming again because life under the sun seems to be always the same, doesn't it? People are born, they live their lives, they die. Sometimes we feel like we live in one of those endless genealogies in the Bible, right? So and so was born, lived so many years, had kids died, and then so-and-so lived so many years, lived and, and died. But even this seemingly sameless, uh, sameness is a display of God's mercy, as Andrew had brought up earlier. As, as things remain the same, as Jesus hasn't returned yet, there's more opportunities for people to come to know uh, Jesus Christ. But that's not, that doesn't mean that Christ is not coming again. It doesn't mean that His coming back is not our blessed hope and motivates us to live holy lives. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a moment?
And the reason why we turn you here is because this, this tension in the church, this uh, wondering about the second coming of Christ and how it plays in the way that we live now, is a tension that's been present in the Church of Jesus Christ, even from the apostolic times. Peter had to deal with that in the churches that he ministered, where people thought, is Christ really coming again? I mean, every day is the same. Things have been going on like this forever. Is Christ coming again? And this is how Peter deals with it. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this, first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, from the church of Jesus Christ, people say, is Christ really coming again? It doesn't look like it. It's just, everything's the same from the beginning. There's no hope. Peter addresses that by saying, in verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that the word of God, the, but by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Here, Lind is one of those passages talking about the end at the coming of Jesus Christ as far as uh, salvation is concerned. So, Peter says, people are saying that, no, even in the church, that things have been the same forever. Christ is really not coming again. Why should we even expect that? He says, there's a fallacy in that statement. Remember the flood, Peter says. People are saying the same thing. That, now nah, things are going to happen. That, this, not, well, this flood is not coming. Ha, 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 Noah, you're a big joker. Or either that, or you're a fool for building this thing. There's no water around here. This is not going to happen. And then the flood came. So things have not been the same forever. God has intervened in history, and God has intervened in history in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time, and he continues to do that. And then he, uh, Peter continues that discussion in verse 10, where he says, By the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And it comes as a thief in the night for those who are not expecting it. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, the expression thief in the night is only used for the unbeliever. Uh, the, the day of the Lord's coming as a thief in the night for the unbeliever because he's not expecting. But for you who believe, you're expecting that day. So it's not going to catch you by surprise. You're not going to be like a, th- he's not going to come to you as a thief in the night because it is your blessed hope and it's causing you to live in a certain way right now. So the coming of Jesus is motivation for holiness now, according to the Scriptures. Any questions before we continue? All right, let's spend the last 10 minutes that we have then looking at the teaching that the grace of God does back in Titus chapter 2. Because that is the main point that that Paul is making to Titus, is that that grace, that disposition that God has toward us, Teaches, teaches us certain things. In verse 12, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The favorable disposition of God toward us teaches us several things. Uh, William Hendrickson, which is a, he's a commentator on the New Testament, says this, Grace trains by teaching, chastening, counseling, comforting, encouraging, admonishing, guiding, convicting, rewarding, restraining, and then he put the etc. there because there's even more ways. And notice that these are all connected to the church of Jesus Christ, to the body of Christ, and so on. John Calvin says, The manifestation of the grace of God unavoidably carries along with it exhortations to a holy life. Uh, Grace is preached clearly and biblically when the church of Christ becomes more and more sanctified. It is the preaching of the grace of God in Jesus Christ that will motivate us to holiness. Uh, if you, that's the argument of Paul in, Romans, in the book of Romans, where he preaches the grace of God so strongly that he knows that people are going to think, so should we sin that grace may abound? That's how chapter 5 ends, right? He's anticipating the argument. He says, certainly not. Because if you really understand the disposition of God, of, of God towards you in Jesus Christ, then you're going to reckon yourself dead to sin, and you're going to live a, right, a life of righteousness. And that's the point in Romans chapter 6. And notice that the grace of God has appeared and is teaching all types of people. It's appeared to all men, all, all types of people. That's the general, generic word for man. It's not necessarily the word for male. It's just the word that pe- uh, can be very well talk about people or kinds of people. And uh, what, one of the things that Paul is saying is that everyone has a purpose in this life. And the pur- this purpose is revealed to us as God looks favorably at us through Jesus Christ and is described in verse 12. So, Christian, God loves you and He has a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan is described in verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If you're trying to discern God's will for your life, that's a good way to start right here because you can clearly, without a doubt, without having to wonder, 100% certainty, know that this is God's will for your life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If the grace of God has appeared to you, if God the Father has a favorable disposition towards you because of Christ, then you know that this is God's will for your life. And Paul then lists two put-offs and three put-ons that grace teaches. As we look to the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the second coming, that will enable us to do five things. Two put-offs, three put-ons. Put off ungodliness and worldly lusts. And it's interesting that uh, in, it says denying ungodliness or refusing ungodliness. And that's the beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that are not consistent with, the faith, with faith in Jesus Christ. And remember that Paul is contrasting the true believer in Jesus Christ with those who say they know God, but whose actions deny which is the very same word, we're to deny not Christ, but we're to deny ungodliness. In verse six, chapter 1, verse 16, those are the people that Paul is contrasting us with. And then it says we're to deny or refuse worldly lusts. Now these are 
deep desires and cravings that are related to this world order and are contrary to Christ, and these are to be refused. Uh, Matthew Herring Commentary says this, To love and live in sin is to trample underfoot redeeming blood, to despise and reject one of the greatest benefits of it, and to act counter to its design. So to, to live a life of sin is really to not understand the love of God in Jesus Christ, to really not have experienced the, the um, favorable disposition of God the Father towards you. And I, I notice I said that Matthew Henry commentary says it instead of just Matthew Henry, because Matthew Henry died around Romans 5 in the writing of his commentary, and his friends put together a committee to finish the, the, the commentary there. And then Paul tells us, you deny these two things and you put on three other things because Christ is coming back. He says, you live soberly. That's self-controlled lives not given to excess. It includes literal sobriety, so we're not to live as drunkards, but also includes having a clear mind in life, thinking clearly. We have to, live, to put on living righteously, just lies in regard to others. Are we living just lives in regard to others? It, it, our, our horizontals, our relationship with our neighbors, and I don't mean the person living next door to you, but the people around you, are they just? Are they based on the justice of God? Are you loving them as you love yourself? And they were to live godly, a life of devotion to God. So we deny, we, we deny two things. We put on three things as we look at the coming of Jesus Christ. Any questions? Yes, Andrew. The guys at a reform form like this phrase, eschatology precedes soteriology. Do you think that, is that a similar sentiment to what you're getting at? Like, in, in God's purpose, it's the end. God's purposes for us is the end, is that holiness, is that perfection. And that is... Yeah, so theo- theologically, that's how it works, right? Because God... God this, the, God established the end from the very beginning. So in that sense, eschatology precedes, the doctrine of less things precedes the doctrine of salvation. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm actually going the opposite. And that because we are, we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, because God is, the Father is favorably disposed towards us because of Christ, then eschatology becomes a motivation for our living now. So, Reformed foreign guys are emphasizing the theological aspect. I'm just emphasizing the practical aspect. Because we, yeah, because we are saved, because we're then the coming of Jesus Christ is a blessed hope. And because he's coming, then we're going to live in a certain way right now. God, and God's favorable, favorable disposition toward us we're going to, going, is going to empower us to do that, looking for the blessed hope of his return. Any other questions? Okay, in the last two minutes, so just, this, let me just address this quickly. Notice that these two negatives and three positives summarize the several groups of people in relationships in verses 2 through 10 of chapter 2. The older men in verse 2 are told to live soberly, not drunk, clear mind, reverently, worthy of honor, temperate, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and patience, that have a healthy faith in Jesus Christ. Older women in verse 3 are to living reverent behavior again younger women in verse 4 and 5 verses 4 and 5 are to live 
in, in godliness. Young men in verses 6 through 8 are also to live in godliness. So these things that the blessed hope of Jesus Christ brings to us applies to every segment of the church. And none of them are just for that one segment. They, they, they cross-pollinate. So it's not just the young women that are to be willing to be taught. Everyone needs to be willing to be taught. It's not only the older women need to be willing to teach. Everyone needs to be able to teach because we're all looking for the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we finish this series, I want to finish with this thought. We look back to the past grace in the cross, and that propels us to future grace in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that grace, past and future, fills us to obedience in the now age. So ultimately the goal of our study of eschatology is that we live righteously now. That today we do what God calls us to do in obedience to Him, in faith in Jesus Christ. Any last questions before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray then. Father, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that you relate to us. We pray that our minds will be upon him even as we approach the time of worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.